Amen. Well, take your seat and uh, harvest good morning. It is so good to be with you and to sing and to lift the name of Christ high. And uh, there's every reason to do that, isn't there? Because our Lord is just everything we've been singing about. Hey, a few things here before, uh, three actually, before I dive uh, us headfirst into Revelation chapter 20, and three things I've got here. Number one, I just want to give a big praise the Lord shout out along with what Pastor Chris had mentioned just about some things that had gone on this week. And uh, usually don't do this, um, but I just am so grateful for uh, um, just so many who put into this week with two things. One, uh, Tom Tuttle and his family attend here, and he is the principal over at the Kingsway Christian School Middle School, and uh, just so key over there, and appreciate what they do, and invited Cody to come in, and Pastor Cody this last week, and lead their slam week, and um, just uh, ministering there to sixth through eighth graders for the entire week. We had So Pastor Cody was there every day, Pastor Nick was there, Chris was there with TAC, we had others from our church family showing up, some of our worship team people there, and uh, just what a blessing to be able to partner with others in our community who love the Lord and who want to be able to lift the name of Christ high and especially have an impact on 6th through 8th graders. Now there's a challenge, and uh, love you 6th through 8th graders by the way, love you. Um, but just so cool. Along with that, then we had the student ministry conference here, and just what a wonderful thing to see so many coming together, and not only the teens, but even the adults, and I want to say thank you. So many poured into making a day and a half uh, trust that the Lord used it and will use it in a big way, and uh, it's always a learning experience, always a learning experience. I did one session there, and Um, In it, I'm like partway through and realizing I had been making reference to some of my own story and talking about how uh, Opie uh, and uh, some relation in my own story. And then it hit me partway through. They have no idea who Opie is. And some of you, in case you don't know, Opie, Taylor, Andy Griffith, you know, the little kid. I used to look just like him as a little kid. And kids in a move called me Opie Dope. And I was telling about that. The old guy is not the sharpest crayon in the box. So uh, anyway, praise the Lord for what he did. Just another thing, I want to let you know kind of where we're going with the whole Revelation series here. Just if uh, sometimes it's know what's coming up and a few things here, what we're doing today and next Sunday, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20. Then the last Sunday of October, I'm going to kind of begin some weeks of, I might call them some weeks of assembly uh, I'll make mentioning here of, of what we're doing. We're laying out the pieces, but I am going to be start uh, doing a process, having three weeks of some assembly work together, getting into some of the timeline. October 25th is going to be on that, some of the views of Revelation as a whole. Then November 1st, we're going to be having a family chat Sunday. Uh, not a sermon, just a time together as a church family to update, go over some things. It'll be a great opportunity to come all in, all together for a really, really important time for us as a church family. If you're new, visiting, looking for a church, I'd encourage you to come November 1st. You're going to learn a lot about just what's going on and, and so forth. And uh, November 8th, 15 is going to kind of be combined with that assembly of the book of Revelation. I'll put it this way. That's where we're going to be doing some timeline talk. Uh, with Revelation and those Sundays. Then we're going to pick up 
uh, back up towards the end of October, or I'm sorry, the end of November through, I'm sorry, the end, yeah, the end of November through December, we're actually going to be taking the book of Revelation all the way up to Christmas. Because after all, Jesus Christ came that Revelation 21 and 22 could happen. And uh, so I think it's going to be really kind of a cool Christmas. We're going to be the crazy church doing Christmas in the book of Revelation and finishing that series up. Third thing I want to do here is I just want to have a little bit of a review, uh, especially in light of where we're at in chapter 20. And I want to review kind of the five key pictures uh, that I've talked about already. Many of you are already familiar with one of them is up on the screen here. This is kind of the series image logo for a Revelation series, Jesus Christ Revealed. This is about Jesus Christ. So often, uh, we approach the book of Revelation, and it's like, I want the timeline, and I'll just say it this way. We put ourselves at the center of the book, and then we get the information we want to, to where I'm at or what I want to know. Instead, the book, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, is about Jesus Christ. He's the source and the subject of the book. And it is about learning more about him. And I, and I tell you, this is really huge today in Revelation chapter 20 because this so often goes into timeline talk. And I'm just going to tell you today, we will have timeline talk on it uh, in coming Sundays. But today, it's seeing the big picture of what's going on in it. And there's some really, really cool things. So this is picture number one. Picture number two, uh, we are on a bus tour together, a site-by-site bus tour. I've been using that feel, and again, the reason for that is we're going site-by-site. You have not seen me in the book of Revelation as we're in the various chapters making reference to the end of the book, because that's not how you go through a tour. And by the way, I do also do not believe that's how the original readers were approaching the book. They were walking it through, reading it through, and then they'd come back and again and again and again and studying it. But we're going sight by sight through this book together. Also, it's a, with that, it's a tour for first-timers. Uh, This is not a uh, theological seminary class, uh, but this is a first-timers on a bus tour together through the book of Revelation. The third picture, Picasso's Guernica. Uh, And you have used that picture to remind us. And uh, Picasso knew exactly what every image in this painting was about. The original painter, the original author, knew what he was painting and why. And Revelation is filled with imagery And yet the imagery is not an invitation for us to be able to interpret it to be whatever we want. There was an original author, painter behind the book, and we want to seek to understand what he was intending in the imagery that is contained within it. Four, we are laying out the pieces. This is really important for today, these last two, all of them are, but these last two We are laying out the pieces. We're going site by site. Um, I've had, I don't have it today, but we've had kind of a working movement through the book as we've been doing, laying it out. In fact, if you want, you can see in the update there, I've made a whole bunch of slides from the series. A number of people have asked me for some of them, so I've made a whole bunch of slides for the series available online. You can go, you can see that it's in there, and they're there, and you can pick which ones you want to keep or don't want to keep. Uh, but we're continuing that. And we, what we are doing is this thing of we're laying out the pieces. We're going and we're seeing things, 
laying them out, not with the intent on assembling it right now. And with that, Revelation is not the only book in the Bible that has content about eschatology or about what's in the future, if you will, in God's plan. That's why we're kind of in this one section of the book of Revelation, and right now we're laying pieces. As I mentioned, we're going to be doing some assembly here in a little while, but I've been waiting till after we get through Revelation 20 to talk a little bit about assembly, but I don't want to make this series about a timeline and about the assembly. I want to make this series about Jesus Christ because that's what it is about. Five, last one, the glasses. Um, uh, I've asked that we remove our theological preferences going into this book. Going into this letter, and sometimes that's a risky thing to do, and sometimes uh, people who love God's Word get really uncomfortable with that, but I think it displays a learner's spirit. It's like, I don't want to have uh, what I've been told it says and what I may even think it says or have some theological preferences in my background. I don't want to force that into the passage. In other words, I do not want my theological framework to shape the book. I want the book to shape my theological framework. And if I have to adjust, I'll adjust, and I will tell you, I have gone into this with a preconceived theological framework, and in that, I've been committed to you and committed to this process. If there are things I need to change in my understanding, that's okay, and I'm willing to do that as we go through it. And so this is really important for today because the chapter 20 is a book where theological frameworks collide into each other. And uh, for some, I'm going to disappoint you today in what I'm talking about. But I will tell you, this week in my office, I'm not kidding. This week in my office, I don't think Nick was next door, so that might have been good. I'm going through this, and I had an aha moment. So I'm excited to share this aha moment with you in Revelation 20, because I've always been like, why does God have this period of time? What's the purpose? Like, let's just get on with the program. And I'll be referring to that in a second. And I had a moment where it's like, what? There's a bigger thing in this than what I've been taught to see. There's a bigger issue. Take out the chapter breaks. Take out the headings. See the flow of the text and the thought of the text. And there's something really cool with this. And I've just set you up to where it's like this may bomb. <laughs> As you may walk away today and go, big deal. But I think this is really cool. I'm really excited about it. And I will say this. It's required me and it will require of us just to take some of the theological preferences off and just let God's word show, okay? So God, I pray as we dive in that you would be great in this and that we would see you more because ultimately this is about seeing you. So show us yourself, Lord. Show us yourself. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen. Bible's open, Revelation chapter 20. Here we go, verses 1 through 10, the thousand years as it has here. Now, as I've kind of already made reference to, 
The vast majority of talk and teaching and writing on this passage has to do what I've termed as timeline talk. It has to do with asking questions like, when is this happening? Is this happening? Are we in this time period? Is this in the future? Uh, How does this come about and how does it end? Uh, Where is this happening? Uh, Who is where when it is happening? And what is happening when this is happening? And all of these kinds of questions, I'll just say this, these are all good questions. They're truly all good, viable questions, questions to discuss and have the conversations about it, but making a timeline, the central thrust and idea of the book is very you and I centered, okay? And also, in it, I just don't think that's the thrust of the book. It's part of the book. But the central talk in this passage, if we take it to a timeline discussion, I think we are going to miss a big overarching thing that's being connected by this in helping us understand some things. I would say it this way. Revelation 20, it it finishes and it prepares. Okay, I think here in a second you'll see it finishes and then it prepares. It also teaches more than it tells. I mean, I have to say, as I've dug into this week, for all the conversation that is out there about this millennium and everything that happens during this millennium time period, whenever that is, whether it is now or in the future, on that, so much of the conversation has to do like with, with telling what's happening during then. But I have to say, I think this is more about teaching than telling And a third statement. So finishes and prepares. It teaches more than it tells. And I'll say it's less about something and more about someone. It's less about something, a millennium. It's more about someone, our God, and understanding him. What do I mean by that? I see in this two critical questions in the movement of the context of the book being addressed in Revelation chapter 1 through 10. Or, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Here here they are. Question number one. Question number one addresses a question that comes out of the preceding verses. And that question is, will God doom Satan? I'll talk about that here in just a second. Question number two addresses a question that's going to be coming up Next Sunday, in anyone who reads the passage is going to be asking this. Wait a second. Is God really fair in dooming unredeemed mankind? Well, let, me, let me just spend a moment on each of those. The first question, will God doom Satan? The preceding verses, you can look at them. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, last Sunday. It talks about the rider who is faithful and true. Key concept. He is faithful and true. He enters on his white horse in righteousness to wage war on his enemies and to judge and doom the beast and the false prophet. And he does. We see that in the text. He does that. But you leave with a question out of verse 20. It talks about the beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And there's a huge question left. 
What about Satan? The beast and the false prophet get their due. And I'll say this, they are sent to the place where like the Hitlers and the Stalins and, and, and the wickedness of, that we're all like, I can see that. They should be sent there for what they have done. But what about Satan? We don't see any end to Satan yet in this, the dragon. Guess what? Verses 1 through 10 answers that. It answers that. Now, the following, next Sunday, verses 11 through 15, you can just skim through it. It talks about the great white throne. God the Father is sitting on it. And verse 15 says this. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they were thrown into the lake of fire. By the way, the exact same place that we're going to be finding out, not only the beast of the false prophet are sent, but Satan is sent, the same place. And you come out of that, and you go, wait a second, I can get it with Satan, I can get it with the beast, and I can get it with a false prophet on why they're sent there. But seriously, if we love one another, seriously, is God really fair in sending unredeemed mankind there? And I will say this, if you have no compassion for people, You won't ask that question, but we should be people of compassion. And I don't want to see any human having that happen. I'd like to write it out of the book. In fact, I just let's just take the whole book and throw it away. And that can resolve that problem. But listen, there is a huge question coming next week just within the soul of any man or woman. And it's this. Is God really fair in doing that? And I think what we see today answers that question. So let's take a look at these two questions. Let's begin with question number one. Will God doom Satan? By the way, most of our time is going to be this, and the second question really just comes out of everything we talk about here. So first we start. I think I've got three sections here. I've ordered it not around a millennium mindset timeline, but about a God is dealing with Satan thing. And so verses 1 through 6, Satan is seized. Let me read those verses for us. Then I saw an angel, an angel coming down from heaven. Uh, every Every time we've seen that in the book of Revelation, it's like given a mission. This is an angel on a particular mission. And holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, the abyss, and a great chain. Now, is an angel really holding a key and a chain? I mean, for real? I don't know, maybe. Maybe not. Maybe this is, this is earth language trying to help us understand what really is going on on the whole. I'm just not getting into that big of a deal on it. But we get this idea. This angel is coming. He's got a key to the abyss in his hand and a chain in his hand. Keep reading verse 2. And he seized the dragon. Now, now that should be a kind of a point where we're like, Woo! Booyah! Okay, ready? (laughs) Love you guys. And he seized the dragon because this dog, this dragon, has been bringing hell for centuries and millennia. And now's his time. 
It's about time. <laughs> Now's his time. And by the way, if we're not sure who the dragon is, that goes back to chapters 12 and 13, uh, it tells us the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Okay, any questions about who's, who's, who's like on the table right there? I mean, it's just like all four terms. It's going all the way back to Genesis 3 and carrying terminology all the way through to Revelation. That dog, that dragon, that devil, that Satan, that one. And he seized that one and bound him. Here's the big term. It's used six times in these verses. A thousand years. And threw him into the pit. And shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not... Uh, a big term in all the discussions of the various views, that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, after what? After this thousand years, he must be released for a little while. How long is a little while? He must be released. Why must he be released? We're not told. Right here. But know this. From God, the Godhead's perspective, this must happen. He must be this, and then he must be released. Verse 4, then I saw, by the way, John is not making up a story. He's not just like contriving the information. He's writing down what he sees. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them, on them were those who, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of... By the way, is that not so interesting that beheaded... You go back 100 years ago, do you realize? That term here reading would pretty have been pretty irrelevant. Oh, my word, is it relevant today. Those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended this is the first resurrection. We'll be talking about that more next Sunday. Uh, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death, we'll be making reference to that next Sunday as well, has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and I love this, and they will reign not under him, with him for a thousand years. Friends, I'm going to tell you, there, there is like a millennia of things we could talk about out of this passage, seriously, on that. And, and, and all would be really good conversations, and all would be uh, fun, and uh, most of them. Um, but but I, want, I want to stay on um, bi the bigger picture, laying out the pieces. 
What do we see here? Verse 1, John saw. John saw an angel coming from heaven on, on a mission. He's holding a key to the abyss. He's holding this great chain. And verses 2 and 3, then the dragon, Revelation 12, and, and then the, who's the, the, the ancient serpent, Genesis 3, who's the devil, Satan, is seized. What does seized mean? It means this. He was bound. He was thrown into the abyss. Uh, the abyss is shut, and, and, and the shut abyss is sealed. Why? Verse 3. So that Satan might not deceive nations any longer. Now, I just in this, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to just ask the question, what's the natural reading of the text? I'm not trying to bring any theological framework into this whole thing. And I'm asking, what does the seizing, binding, throwing, shutting, sealing give the idea of? Are we getting the idea of some partial limiting of? Or are we getting the idea here out of the text of some full, incapac- full incapacitation of? I-, I-, I think here, just the natural reading of the text without trying to bring anything into it, it's the latter. It's this idea of he's like, shut up, sealed, thrown in, away. I think just the natural flow of this is that idea of this full seizing. Now, I want to say, and I want to say respectfully, some think that this is a, a partial limitation of Satan, that he is still has activity, but, but, there's a, but the area that is limited in him is the ability to, quote, deceive the nations. In other words, he is limited during this period of time to deceive the nations from taking out Christ's church. That, that's one view of thought, and I'll just say some really Good, smart people who love the Lord uh, have that view. Uh, I, I don't. I, I think in this, the natural reading of this is uh, this full incapacitation of that he's, that he's locked up, shut up, sealed up, and he can't deceive anymore. I'm like all in on that by the way, and I don't say that because that's what I want it to say, but it's like, it's about time in this whole thing. So staying central to this question, uh, Satan is seized, bound, thrown into, shut in, sealed in for, it says, a thousand years. In fact, here, just so far in these first six verses, it's stated a thousand years, I believe it's five times with the sixth time there in verse seven. Uh, we could spend a millennia talking about what is the thousand years. Uh, let me just uh, take a couple minutes here on some things. Six times it's stated in chapter 20. And the question is, is, is a thousand years an actual thousand years or is it a symbolic thousand years? Uh, there are good people have uh, different views on it. A symbolic view that kind of has this hermeneutical assumption, this, this, this assumption that all numbers or the vast majority of numbers, the, the first thing you should do with any number in the book of Revelation, a numeric value, is, is it's, it's first symbolic. Uh, example, three is God, four is creation, seven is perfection, ten is completeness, twelve represents the community of God. That's why twelve times twelve, the 144,000. Uh, and a thousand is really an unspecified period of time. Often uh, the verse that's kind of used, one of the key verses for uh, clarifying the thousand is that Second uh, Peter 3.8 says a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day unto the Lord. Um, and, and seeing that as symbolic, I actually don't think it has to, it's necessarily meaning that. 
But could a thousand years here be symbolic? I'll just say it, it could. It could. You know what? I'm going to leave that in the Lord's hands. Um, but here in it, as, as I just am a student of God's Word, and you are, and you come here to help, help me be a better student of God's Word, and I would say, I, I don't think it's symbolic. I, I think it has this idea in the natural reading of it that it actually was referring to an actual thousand-year period of time. And, and a few reasons for that I'll just mention. Uh, one, I'm, I'm seeing as I've been through this book of Revelation that, that I think coming out of symbolic, you're bringing in a theological framework requires the necessity of making the numbers symbolic. And I think that's an error. Uh, if you take away the symbolism of the numbers, uh, uh, that theological framework kind of melts and, and has some major problems with it. We'll be talking about this in some assembly weeks ahead. Uh, so I think it, it requires a theological framework pressed into the text. Secondly, I think the symbolic view, and, and this is just me, it's not consistent. It's not used consistently. They say that the numbers are symbolic, but then the same people would say that there actually were three angels about to blow the trumpets in Revelation 8, and there actually were are four living beings around the throne, and, and that's not symbolic. And there actually are seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls out of that, but yet all the other numbers become symbolic, and it, to me it's, it's selective uh, sim, symbolism application. Another thing is the word thousand just used by John. How does John use the word thousand? Well, in John 6, 10, the only other time he uses it, he says he's referring to an event and he's saying there were about 5,000 men sat down. And I think it's clearly understood here that he's saying about 5,000. Uh, not like it was a massive number of people that I have no idea how many. I think it was like about 5,000, not 4,000, not 6,000, but probably about 5,000 men. You go to Revelation 9.16, it says the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And I'm just asking the question, if 1,000 in Revelation is a nondescript term, meaning a very long period of time, why does 10 have to be applied to it? Why not just 1,000 times 1,000? And if 10 means complete, why not just state it as 10 times 10? And yet, the terminology is 10,000 times 10,000. I personally, this is just me, I personally, respectfully, I have some problem with, with seeing it symbolically there. Uh, Revelation 13, 11, 13, it says, A great earthquake, a tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed. And similar to what I said just a minute ago, if seven is symbolic of complete, why not just say a tenth of the city fell and seven people were killed? Or if thousand is like an, an undefinable number, just say, a thousand. Why complete unknown? It, it just, I'm having a hard time wrestling with it. The other is, is the word years in the Bible uh, making reference to a, to a period of time outside of Revelation, I'm going. It's always referring to a specific amount of time. Plus, when the word year, outside of Revelation, a number is applied to it, in all uses of it, it always means certain number of times of the earth around the sun. And so I don't see years as being anything other than actual years. And the fifth thing is, I just think the natural reading of this, it makes sense as a thousand. So I'm going to leave it there. And if you right now are like, what? Uh, that's okay, but for others of you, I hope that gives you maybe some, some meat to chew on.
That's all the further I'm going to go there. And let me say it this way. If it's an actual thousand years, or if it's a symbolic thousand years, hear me on this. That is a pencil issue. Okay? If you come and you have what would be called an amillennial view of things, and we're in the millennium right now, I want for you to know, even though I go through the text and I'm having a hard time seeing that, I understand that, I respect you, and I want for you to know that's a pencil issue because we both agree in the physical return of Jesus Christ, okay? And I do not want for this to be some kind of separate dorky issue as a church family. It's just not necessary. Let's stay with the question here. Will God doom Satan? Yes. And we're seeing that happen. There's so many other things I could talk about, but I'm not going to. Uh, Second, verses 7 through 9. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released. Well, Well, that's what it was said up above. From his prison. That's where he was at, up above. And will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, that's Old Testament terminology, I don't have time today, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. In other words, they go, he goes, he deceives the nations, and like, there's like so many people who join him. It's like, figure of language, it's like all the sand on the sea. Oh boy, I don't want to, why not just say a thousand if, it, if okay, well, I'm done with that. <laughs> Sand on the sea, verse 9, and they, Satan and all of these ones, marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. There, there's certain aspects, and, and some do think that this is a repeating of, of what we saw last Sunday at the end of Revelation 19, that this is referring to the same war. I don't think so. I'll just, quick timeline. I do think that Revelation 19 happens, and I do think this is a movement, and I think after he comes and there's the, the, the beast is thrown and, and the, the, the false prophet is thrown and, and then Satan is locked up, and then there, I think that there is a thousand years period of time on earth where Jesus Christ reigns. And who's where and what's going on? I'm just not getting there. It's not necessary right now. But Satan, we find out here, what's happening, he's released at the end of this period of time. He enters the world to deceive the nations. A a, a giant number of them go with him. A giant number of unredeemed people during this millennial time. How did they get there? Not going there. Uh, But they are. There are unredeemed people during this millennial reign. And Satan comes back. And do you, do you, are you seeing what's happening? And, and after a thousand years of time living in a world, which I think here, again, whether it's Amil or Premil, I'm, I think of Premil here, where it's this idea where we've had a thousand years of time where people, both saved and unredeemed, some unredeemed people, are living during this time under the reigning of Jesus Christ where Satan is bound, thrown, cast away. It's kind of like heaven on earth for a thousand years and Satan comes back for a little bit and unredeemed people are lickety-split with him 
after a thousand years under the, the righteous ruling reign of Jesus. And bam they're right back. All the conversation goes with who's where and who's where and what's happening here. And this whole issue, this is huge for next Sunday. But know this. Verse 10. And the devil, who's the dragon, the ancient serpent, Satan, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Where's that? It's where the beast and the false prophet were thrown. Chapter 19, verse 20. And, and, and actually, this is interesting. Some more descriptive terminology is given. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. Will God doom Satan? Yes! Okay? I mean, seriously. Dooming Satan, dooming the beast, dooming the false prophet, deserved. Know this, friends. The world we live in now, this is not eternity. Alleluia. Okay? Okay? But we live in this world now saying hallelujah because we know that this is not the end. And life like this is not the end. The Lord is bringing all things right to where he wants it. And it's really, really good. And that includes Satan. But is God really fair in dooming unredeemed man? I get the Satan thing, I get the beast thing, I get the false prophet thing. But next week we come into this. And verse 15, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. By the way, the lake of fire is the same place in chapter 19, verse 20, that the beast and the false prophet are said to be sent. It's referred to in Revelation 14, verse 11, where it tells about it, tells about that place. Here we find at the end of verse 10, where they are tormented day and night forever and ever. This is not annihilation. This is a forever and ever kind of reality here. And that should stir up within us. No. I will just tell you, I do not like that. But, 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 and we ask, is God really fair in dooming under mankind like that? And that is a good question. Let me reread something. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. They wanted to war God again. And I'll even say, whether it's an all-mill position or a pre-mill position, it's this thing to where this is showing that bound up within the heart of mankind... 
those that are without Christ, they are fully responsible. They have, I think, been given a thousand years to live where Satan is out of the picture. Jesus is reigning in righteousness and grace and truth and faithfulness. And they live it for a thousand years. And even after a thousand years of living under the righteous, faithful, true, gracious reign of Jesus, when the moment comes, they want to war him. That's the real heart of mankind. And when we come to this place where God does what he does, Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is is made plain to them. Listen, one of the things we have clearly seen throughout all the book of Revelation is not that God is just like this, I'm ticked and honked and you're annoying me and I can't handle it anymore and I'm coming at you with wrath. What we see in it is his righteous wrath, but throughout all of it, he is continually seeking to make himself known. Through the the 144,000, through the two witnesses, through the angel even flying over the earth, however that ends up working, to the great multitude of people, to all the God is continually, continually, continually showing and providing the opportunity for unredeemed mankind to come to him and to know him. God is not holding himself back, God is fully making himself known. And even after a thousand years, the heart of man without Jesus Christ wants to war him. And I will say this. I think that Revelation 20 verses 1 through 10 prepare us for the question that rises out of the text next Sunday, and lets us know this. God is fair in dooming unredeemed mankind. He has given them time and 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 time time and time and time and time and time and time again. For what God, for what can be known about God is made plain to them because God has shown it to them. Romans 1 verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. By the way, they know it. It's been clearly perceived. And in fact, it says, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. Just look, there is a God, and something has gone wrong. And it's it's just so clear. 
So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Hey, I would like to finish with this. A perfect world is coming. A perfect world is coming. And we need to know that in these times that we live now. This is not all there is. This is not what there is. This is for a time. I also want for us to understand that the the constant poured out grace of God, it's just constant. But we also need to know within that the reality of the constant ongoing depravity of man. God will doom Satan and God will doom unredeemed mankind. There's hope in that. There's an awing in that. And there's a fear in that. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? I don't mean do you know about. I don't mean did you do some religious, as I kind of call it, some religious ditty dance at some point in time in your life. I'm talking about, has there come a point in time where you've come to the realization that you are a sinner separated from a holy God? And that it's not, it's, it's not even about just some prayer. It's about driving the stake in the ground and, and, and confessing that sin and receiving him as a savior and running after him and fruit showing from that. Because God is serious. This is no game. This is real deal. And I want for you to know this. He loves you. He loves you. And his grace is available and poured out. We all receive it every day in the fact that this world just doesn't implode. That's our God. If you need to talk with someone about what it means to, uh, to know that you know that you know that you are Christ's own, oh, come and talk. Come and talk with someone you came with. Come and talk with someone you're sitting by. Ask. There's no bigger question. And I want for you to know if you are in Christ, listen, your Savior's got it. Okay, and let's keep running. Let's keep running right at him. So, Lord, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you for your kindness and your goodness and, and, and honestly just the fact that in a world like we live in, you know we struggle to get it, and sometimes it doesn't make sense. Oh, Lord, what in the world's going on? <laughs> and the answer to that is, just the way you want it to be moving. You're moving all things to where they should go. 
And there's an element of rejoicing in that for sure. There's also an element of awing in that for sure. And Lord, there's also an element of, oh, help us. Because we know we're not there yet. It is not the eternal state yet. But it is coming. God, may we have a passion and a compassion for those who are without Christ. May we see our family. May we see our friends. May we see our neighbors. May we see our city. May we see our nation. May we see the world and the people without Christ. And God, I would pray it would humble us and break us. Lord, if there's anyone here in this room that is just not sure where they are at with you, God, I would pray for a a redeeming work. May they drive the stake in the ground confirm their saving faith in you, warrior king, the one who will reign, the faithful and true one, the one who created them and loves them, and yearns for them to return home. Do work, Lord. And we rejoice in you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.